Hi there, I'm Mark Davidson, a former New South Wales police sniper and detective. And I'm Lena Newen, a former police lawyer. The lawyer, the sniper and the New South Wales police is our story, told in the hope that others who have come up against the entrenched culture of law enforcement from within might find ways to speak more openly. And then we can contribute to changing the system. So our focus is on how police responded in the aftermath of both of our stories. We're passionate about justice and we're determined to add our voices to calls for change so no one else is discarded as we were. In this episode, we're joined by the formidable journalist Quentin Dempster. Quentin has a career of forensic examination of institutionalised corruption, including reportage of the Fitzgerald Inquiry in Queensland and the Wood Royal Commission into the New South Wales Police Service. He's a foundational member of Whistleblowers Australia and is an expert in politics, anti-corruption, counter-terrorism, public policy, public administration and corporate governance. He's the author of Honest Cops and Whistleblowers and has an Order of Australia medal for his contribution to media, along with the Walkley Award acknowledging his outstanding contribution to journalism. We're going to discuss the deeply tribal cultural ecosystem that is a police force and the nature of whistleblowing. Quentin, it's so good to have you with us. What's really changed in the 30 years since you wrote those two books? Well, after absorbing uh, your story, Lena, and, and Mark's story, nothing much has changed in hierarchical culture. It's self-protective. It's very reluctant to admit error. It will do whatever it can to expel the person or discredit the person who is making what they think to be malign claims about them. So it's about reputation. What's really distressing to me is that even after we've been through the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse, reputation for organisations and entities, corporate or public, is still a primary objective in protection. So we've got a big problem about changing corporate and administrative culture to accept the lived experience of people who want to say there's something wrong here. I'd agree with that completely. I mean, in my experience with the New South Wales Police Force, there's been a lot of change in terms of police practices, laws, establishment of oversight bodies. But it seems to me that that culture still remains. So that culture of not admitting to mistakes and let alone misconduct or wrongdoing and the treatment of those who do speak up. Quentin, reading Honest Cops for me was like an intimate walkthrough of what brings us to where we are now. I imagine myself in those units that you described and, you know, in the 1980s, that's when a lot of the senior police who I worked with and reported to, that's when they joined. That's when they were acculturated. (laughs) I can well understand why police culture develops the way it is because we're in first response situations. We're dealing with some heavy crooks and you watch my back and I'll watch yours. And uh, you become bonded as colleagues in that situation. And does that mean that I'm prepared to tell a lie to help you? Well, you could say, yes, I will. I will doctor my evidence to support you 
and we'll get the right brief in and we'll do this crook over. You can well understand that developing and only occasionally do people say, I'm not going to be part of this and I'm going to do something about it. And then they put themselves at extreme risk, sometimes their lives and sometimes their career and sometimes their whole psychological well-being when they do that. And I sat through various inquiries and saw coppers who had done the right thing and I thought, gee, this, this ought to be told. Because not speaking out in that sort of context can hold your rapport with the group. If you're in a groupthink situation and, and you choose not to make waves and not to speak out, then it's going to make life easier for you in a sense. Would, would you agree with that? Or? Yes, of course. Yeah. And then you say, well, then you, you have to compromise your conscience. Yes. Well. But it's sometimes the culture is so strong you'll go into all sorts of cynical, expedient behaviour to protect your colleagues. Very hard. I think the audience can understand how hard it is for people to break away from what is a bonded culture because we've been in very dangerous situations. That certainly exists in the military on active service and it certainly exists in the police force. So do you think there needs to be an acknowledgement that evolution out of that cultural framework is going to be challenging, Quentin? Yes, and there are mechanisms by which that can be done without you ruining your bloody life. There's things called protected disclosures. They can be anonymised tip-offs, and if they're handled properly and sensitively, people should be able to get on with their lives and their work, particularly if they're going to expose systemic failures from which the organisation can learn. But you really need enlightened leadership then to change culture. The thing that has really got me looking at your case, Mark, and to some extent Lena's case, is the failure of hierarchies to admit error and the unwillingness to admit error And the reason I'm saying that is after 9-11, there was an intelligence officer in the United States who had the courage to stand up in front of the American people, I think it was a congressional hearing or something, and said, we're the intelligence, security intelligence uh, regime of the United States. 3,000 people were killed in in the Twin Towers. And this guy stood up and said, we failed you. We failed to protect you. And once that acknowledgement had been made, it was so therapeutic for the families of the bereaved to hear somebody in officialdom say, we failed you. And then, of course, we've got to look at what went wrong, what we did wrong, and going right back to uh, United States military operations and all those sorts of things. There's a long history to it. There's practicalities and all that. But to hear somebody say, we failed you. And in Lint Cafe, there was immediate ice covering, if you know what I mean. You could see that happening rather than to say, uh, this wasn't the result that could have been achieved. Well, I think on a superficial level, for want of a better term, the Commissioner did admit that we could have done things better or we, we made some errors, but that's where the detail stopped. There was no 
depth to his... There's no other dot points that go on that, beyond that. Right. We, we, and then go down the fingers of one hand and say, we didn't do this, we didn't do that, we should learn from this. Yeah, that, that's, what I, that's what I don't remember hearing anything like that. It was just like a very one-sentence type of admission that they could have done things better. It was obvious to the, to the public that things hadn't gone right. Yeah, this was the minimal acknowledgement that could have been given in the circumstances, really. With your earlier point about there is mechanisms to call out the bad culture or bad behaviour and be protected. I know in the New South Wales Police there is an internal witness support program that does exist that if it's adhered to, it does protect the uh, person calling out the bad cultural reporting complaints within the service. The trouble is, uh, your, your next point was pertinent, which was it's the leadership that needs to enact that mechanism or framework to, to make it work because it is there, it does exist. They just don't play by that rule book in Lena's case and many other cases. Well, that goes to our point that nothing's changed. Yeah. Yes. Not learning from whatever case history that came up and said, we're going to change that. After the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, the whole of corporate culture, public and private, should change. And that is that if there's an allegation or a complaint about child sexual abuse within your organisation, your reputation means nothing. It's the protection of the child is the absolute imperative and we've all got a responsibility to call the police immediately, not the public relations officer (laughs) or the lawyer. Uh, It's to call the police and say, we're going to have this investigated. And what has upset me about this is that reputation still means everything to the New South Wales police in your case, Mark, and in your case, Lena. Oh, absolutely. On the point about lawyers and media, the Commissioner Mick Fuller, who was appointed after the Lint Cafe, to damage control all of this, one of the first restructures he did was to appoint the General Counsel and the Boss of Media as direct reports to himself. So it's damage control. What I've learnt from that exchange, Lena, was it's damage control rather than what did we do right, what did we do wrong, what can we learn from it and acknowledge it. The New South Wales Police Force are very good in telling you the procedures and the policies that they've implemented and the programs. I mean, they've done it this week in in the budget estimates in Parliament, but it's it ends there. It is for perception and it is a lot of the time smoke and mirrors. The substance isn't there. The will isn't there. It's not underpinned by actual voluntary change. It's come about through force and reactivity. But they'll always be able to tell you, yes, we've changed the procedure and we've changed the policy and we've trained our I'll cars. go to the policy documents that have got the dot points and the corporate speak down the page. This is what we do. But then what I hear from you is there is no flow on of change to culture. Parallel to that, I'm hearing similarities when you you speak, Mark, about, well, what did I train for? What did I join for if I couldn't do my job on the day? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the common phrases that I remember hearing in the police is, we have to be seen to be doing something. And that's the phrase. But even if that action of seeing to be doing something is meaningless to changing things in a positive way, that's all that mattered. It's the perception that there was a change. And so having all those mechanisms to do certain things are all great because they can release it in press conferences. But if they actually don't action it, then it doesn't mean anything. I have to confess to you here as a media person for many years, the media is piss weak in that sense of playing 
into the 24-hour news cycle of having an announceable, as oh, it were, yeah. and rather than a deeper understanding of that. So the media can be played off a break in a spin-doctoring sense of there's an announcement by the, by the police in response to this and they get a, an appropriate headline and make it look as though they're doing something, but everybody else, particularly in the police force, will roll their eyes knowing that nothing really will change. And I'm afraid to say sometimes the media redeems itself because it does some very good investigative work, but that requires a lot of resources a lot of effort and a lot of courageous informants prepared to help the media expose something. That's why this podcast is, is a very good idea. Let's talk about accountability. Quentin, you pointed out the avoidance of accountability across various organisations in the public sector and in the private sector being endemic in the 90s. And now 30 years later, our experiences, though profoundly different, are identical in that the police have refused to dig deep into the serious mishaps we have recounted. Do you think there's any other way to affect change in an organisation if they refuse to even acknowledge that there's a problem? The media can help in that. The mere fact that you are telling your story courageously and Mark is telling his story publicly is an assistance to that. The media is the fourth estate, as it were, and the public has an interest in hearing those stories. But you're right, the police have a power and an authority and they can apply it for malign ends rather than enlightened ends to say, yes, we can make mistakes, we're very seriously going to investigate it, look at it and correct it. That needs to come from the leadership of the police force constantly. And internally, the leadership can change the culture by saying, you're a good police officer because you brought forward a mistake or an error or a misjudgment from which we can all learn and then promulgate that and share that and then say, this is the way we're going to change things. But you're right, there is an absolute resistance to accountability, to learning from error because of the reputational damage that that implies. Although I think your reputation can be enhanced by your acknowledgement of failure or deficiency or mistake or error. In defending the ABC over many years, I've said, look, the ABC is a flawed institution. It makes mistakes. There can be inexperience. There can be factual error. But our objective is to correct those mistakes. So you, the public, who are paying for it, can see that we are committed to doing the right thing, the right and decent thing. And it always distresses me when you see a failure to own up to accountability from a leadership perspective within organisations and to go into sometimes quite aggressive countermeasures, discrediting a witness, mm. going for them, vilifying them, using compliant people in the media or elsewhere to, to do you over. That occurs. It can be quite vicious and it should be called out where you see it. One of the really gutting issues for me, and we'll speak about this further in our next episode when we discuss the legal implication of what's happened 
and what should change. One of the really gutting issues for me was the fabrication of evidence and evidence being gathered and considered that should never have even been taken into account at all. And as we talk, I'm about to go to trial. I'm suing the New South Wales Police Force and the perpetrator for the sexual assault in employment law, as well as the victimisation and the discrimination from me losing my job after speaking up. And what that means is that I'm in a very unique position as a sexual assault victim and complainant that I've actually have access to and I've seen the criminal brief of evidence. There are inadmissible statements that sexually vilified me for how I dress, for example, that have absolutely no place in modern day legal proceedings. And not only that, there's evidence of conversations that simply never took place, actual fabrications. Given that there was a flawed investigation and the police officer who raped me was never held to account, how can anyone be sure that there'll be accountability if they come forward? Look, I can't comment on the specifics of your case, but I think the audience would be well aware that there can be all sorts of dirty tricks played in disputations. So you start to think like a defence lawyer and you can have an aggressive defence or you can have a oh, cop it sweet or you'll say, I'm going to fight like hell so that I'm not sanctioned, fined, my career destroyed, my reputation destroyed and worst of all, I go to jail. So I can well understand all sorts of dirty tricks being played, including the fabrication of evidence, including getting your mates to help you in the fabrication of evidence, including vilification and character assassination. The way Lena was dressed is irrelevant in an evidentiary sense of an accusation, an allegation of sexual assault. It's a criminal act, sexual assault, and um, it seems that slut shaming, as it's called, can be used as part of character assassination and to discredit the complainant. And in that sense, the integrity of the judiciary is one of our saving graces and that we can only hope that a judge aware of dirty tricks that can be played can make the right judgments. And I suppose from this, we've got to learn how do you protect yourself if you're a victim or how do you prosecute your case to protect yourself and to get justice. You need a bloody good lawyer. You need support systems. You need people to help you with your sanity, uh, your mental health, your psychological well-being. So, Quentin, can we turn now to whistleblowing and, and the experience of whistleblowing? So all, all through history, informing or dobbing is frowned upon, to say the least. And some terms like the give up or a dog or a source or informer or internal witness are all terms to describe that a person has broken ranks and is taking matters to an adjudicating authority of some sort. They share the psychological breakdown as a result of the responses that they get if they do, by circumstance, either have the courage or find themselves in a, an untenable position where they have to put their hand up and disclose something and take it higher. As a journalist, when whistleblowers have come to me, I've said, listen, yes, I'd love a story. I'm a journalist and this is the public interest, clearly, but is it in your interest to do that? Mm. And that's why 
anonymity, I think, may be a pathway to protect people so they can get on with their lives because the moment you're traumatised, you've got to live with the trauma. And sometimes it's very difficult for people to recover their well-being, their psychological well-being. So I always say, listen, do you really want to do this? Your career is over, you know. As blunt as that, your career is over, you know. Do you really want to do this? Can't we be more tactical about it? I can take the documents you've given me. We can give you anonymity. I can get the lawyers in and we can say, how the bloody hell can we tell the public this story without damaging this brave informant? Some, of course, are already in extremis and they say, I've got no choice, I'm going to go public. And I can understand them doing that. Sometimes they're so credible that they're in good standing and they're seen by the public as the courageous people that they are. Others, of course, may already be damaged goods. They may already have other problems which can be exploited. So I always say to whistleblowers, do you really want to do this? So if anybody's listening and they're they're blowing the whistle, (laughs) please have a look at the case histories and inform yourself about what you can go through and think unashamedly, tactically, about how you protect yourself because the organisation that you're hoping to help (laughs) by exposing wrongdoing or maladministration won't necessarily like you for it. You won't get a cup of tea with the chairperson or the governor or the prime minister or the governor general and thanking you for exposing (laughs) the failure of, uh, of the institution or the corporation or the shareholders. The other danger for whistleblowers is that people will withdraw the hems of their garments as they past you in the corridor because you're a bastard and you have exposed this organisation to a reputational damage rather than... Some will come up to you and say, well done, thanks very much, what can I do to help? Some, some will, but mostly the lived experience has been that you make a pariah of yourself. But I suppose the, the serious element of it is that What happens in organisational culture and hierarchy is, yes, we have a whistleblower policy and this is what we'll do to protect you. And then you find yourself taken out of your workplace and then you find yourself moved elsewhere or, you know, you're obviously distressed, we'll put you on sick leave and then you're away from any supports that might be available to you in your workplace and you won't be put back to work where you've got your most satisfaction, where you can get on with your life, all of a sudden you've got pariah status, not brave whistleblower status or brave brave informant status trying to help the organisation come with a problem. And Whistleblowers Australia says this is a problem in corporate and public sector culture where people are psychologically damaged, even further damaged by their experience and moved closer to the door. It happens in the military, it happens in the coppers, it happens in organisational culture all around Australia and around the world. You move closer to the door and then that becomes quite clearly to me anyway, a cover-up. You're swept under the carpet, as it were. That's a cover-up. Quentin, you're a foundational member of Whistleblowers Australia. What were your intentions there? The objective of Whistleblowers Australia is really summed up in one sentence by Edmund Burke. All it needs for evil to flourish is for people of goodwill to do nothing. <laughs> and, and that's the conscience 
raising element of it of people who find themselves in situations where they have to put their hands up and speak up. But Whistleblowers Australia evolved as a support network for people who found themselves having, as people of goodwill, to alert the public or do nothing. So that's what's happened, and you can read on the Whistleblowers Australia website all the ugly case histories and inform yourself about every case going back over decades. So organisations with real social power need to be prepared to hear and deal with wrongdoing, and, and they aren't. In the last episode, we talked about the blame and shame culture, and you've talked about self-preservation within an organisation or individuals. How can we talk to counter that, do you think? We're all careerists, I suppose, in the, particularly in the early stages of our lives. We want our careers to go well, and we don't want any black marks. That's self-preservation and understandable, but we should be able to encourage it if there, again, is good collegiality. I think the answer to it is collegiality. You should be able to, in a good corporate culture, a collegial corporate culture, say, I stuffed up and I've learned from that. And your colleagues or peers be able to say, thanks very much for acknowledging that. So collegiality is also a capacity for you to say to a colleague, listen, you're making the wrong call here, mate. You're going down the wrong track. And the collegial culture should be such that somebody in pecking order authority or rank authority should be able to say, thank you so much for telling me and for there to be no reprisals whatsoever. Yeah, and this is a pertinent point because in our last episode, we're going to talk about this a little bit more closely in in an example from the Australian Air Force and how they do after action reports or debriefs following flight sorties. Turning to advice for would-be whistleblowers, one of the things that happened to me in in my story, Quentin, was... um, In the coronial inquest, I was confronted with versions from other officers from the tactical operations unit, and their versions were that at no time did Mark broadcast about Tory Johnson being put onto his knees in a submissive sort of position. I suppose it was a form of gaslighting that they tried to make me question my own reality in terms of whether I did make this broadcast or not. For me, there was no way really, I don't think, that I could have foreseen I would have, I was going to get uh, hit with these accusations before I, I, I went into the, the evidence to, at the inquest. So after hearing just that snapshot of a, a small part of my story, what are the lessons that you think come out of it? I just want to acknowledge the distress you have experienced and having your credibility challenged through the coronial inquest. And I can well understand you, for your, as you say, for your own sanity, getting checking with others and for them to tell you privately that you did broadcast. And I can well understand your relief to yeah. hear that, that you're a sane man and you did broadcast what you had observed at the time. The question, what can whistleblowers do in these situations is to... Get down with supporters, loved ones, friends. If you've got a lawyer, well and good. You can get advice from Whistleblowers Australia as well. They've got people who are absolutely experienced in this stuff, have been through absolute extreme vicious situations to help people 
uh, who are going to be exposed or they're going to have their credibility questioned. So your support system is the best psychologically and then tactically, particularly if you're in legal dispute or you're in employment workplace problems as a consequence of it, or your career has gone bust or blown up as a result of what you've done. You need a support system for all those reasons and put it down factually. I've found in helping whistleblowers is sometimes write it down yourself, write it down and then establish the timeline of the events that have occurred, your lived experience, so that you're in command of the facts. And then that is a basis upon which you can work out tactics to support yourself. I suppose you have to confront the fact that this is a career-defining or in some cases a life-defining incident in your life. You gather your loved ones around and say, look, I'm in trouble here. People are trying to discredit me or I'm confronting my employer and uh, that is never easy because they're formidably powerful. They've got more resources than you have. So the only thing you can do for your uh, emotional well-being and survival actually and recovery hopefully is get a support system around you. Everything is the next step. So there's trauma upon trauma as you have to relive. You have to retell your story again and again and again when in many ways you want to just get it over with. So you do have a period of going through, particularly if there are inquiries, investigations and all sorts of consequences from your experience, how to maintain your psychological... I suppose psychological toughness is uh, what I'm saying. Uh, If you've got a smart lawyer, even better, because they can also, knowing the law and its perversities as they do, they can also help you and you can plan things that way. So it's a case of survival. And if you have that capacity through sharing your experience with supporters, that's the best way through it to recovery. Yeah, Quinton, from from both Lena and I, really from the heart, want to thank you sincerely for devoting your time and effort and thoughts and giving us your opinions about everything that we've talked about up to today. It's really an honour to have you involved in our process. So thank you so much. I know what you've been through. I know what you're still going through. I want you to get to the other side and to recover. And if this can help in any way, I'm only too pleased to assist. And we thank Gretchen for putting together this podcast series. It'd be very valuable to anybody listening and to the public generally. We express our deepest gratitude, Quentin, and not just for your clearly your depth of professional experience and knowledge, but the authentic empathy that you bring to us as humans and connecting as humans heart to heart. Thank you so much. Quentin Dempster, investigative journalist. And in our next episode, we'll be hearing from Michael Bradley, of renowned Mark Lawyers with his perspective on the legal flaws present in both our cases and more broadly across whistleblowing and speaking out. A good place to head if you need advice in any area we've discussed is Whistleblowers Australia. If you've experienced sexual assault or any kind of family or domestic violence, call the National Counselling Line on 1800 737 732 That's 1800 RESPECT. 
The show today was devised by us, Mark Davidson and Lena Nguyen. The executive producer is Gretchen Miller, with sound engineering from Judy Rapley. Thanks for staying with us. Bye for now.